This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, we have my friend, John Crossman. John has been in the real estate business for 28 years, and he is a big influencer in the industry. He's gone in many different directions, um, has a more diverse resume than most people in commercial real estate, and I think he brings a lot of interesting insights, and I'm excited to uh, talk to him today. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you. So, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're up to today and what's going on in your world? Sure. I would tell you that for the first uh, 27 years of my commercial real estate career uh, was pretty a normal trajectory of you know steps and activities. What happened to me uh, last year was that um, both my mom and my wife developed some serious illnesses, not COVID-related. This is pre and so I chose to um, uh, retire. I sold my company and um, I really spoke folks took six months on caregiving for them and my two teenage daughters, which was totally worth it. Um, and I will tell you that uh, both my wife and my mom have made really strong recoveries. They're doing better. And so now I'm, I'm coming back. I'm coming back and doing some stuff. Um, and so I'm doing that in two uh, ways. One is really focusing on, on the career development stuff, which you know that I, in that space I'm very passionate about. And uh, we're going to do some executive coaching. And on the other side, I've launched a little real estate company called Crossmark uh, with a partner of mine. And we're uh, looking at buying some assets and we also do some advisory work. Uh, but all of that is still, I'm keeping it a small scale uh, because there's still an importance for me to be uh, closer to home. Got it. And you sold your, you said it was like other folks, you sold your real estate company. What, for 27 years, what did you do in real estate? Sure. So I got started in real estate as a leasing agent. Um, I have a degree for, in real estate from Florida State. Um, and so I did that for a number of years. And that was with uh, Faison, which was really good years in my career. And then I got into leadership leading a leasing team. Um, and then I made a switch into investment sales. And so I did retail investment sales for a number of years. Uh, that was predominantly with Tremel Crow Company. So that was a great experience. And then I left and then partnered with my brother uh, and ramped up Crossman and Company. And we took it from, um, you know, like a 700,000 square foot portfolio in Orlando to a almost 30 million square foot portfolio um, in eight states. Uh, So, you know, when I look back at my career, it's like I've had heavy leasing experience. I've had heavy investment sales experience and then heavy leadership, you know, building and branding and running a a nice size organization. Wow. And so... How many employees did you have at, you know, when you, when you left or when you sold your business? Uh, you know, it was probably pushing 70, around 70. And, then, you know, yeah, I will tell you what's funny is, is that I think that running a company of um, 10 or less is really fun and running a company of like 60 or more is really fun and running a company of 30 is really miserable. Um, <laughs> I've learned when people talk about growing a company, I'm always like, Look, if you get to ten, you want to grow. Go ahead and go to one hundred because that middle phase is uh, is a lot harder than you think. Uh, what, harder than you think. What, what what are the what what was the pain in that phase? The pain is is that when you get big enough that you can have uh, middle management, so you can delegate. That's awesome. And when you're small enough that you're personally doing some of the stuff yourself, that's awesome. When you're in the middle and you don't have enough uh, financial resources to delegate, if you're trying to do it all. It's just terrible. I mean, like, 
you know, if you're thinking like, man, I could, I could show space and do deals plus, you know, hire and manage, like there's a point where, yeah, you can do that. But then there's a point it, it, if there's a breaking point of that, yeah, then, you totally. play. then you got to hire some people and spend some money and then, and then jump up the business to the next level. So yeah, totally. sure. Awesome. That's a, that's pretty awesome career path. Um, and so you sold your business and you've ramped up these two companies, but even before that you you've been pretty passionate about, uh, a, a lot of different things. You've been pretty public about your passion in um, career development. You've been pretty public on your passion for diversity. And for a guy with so much real estate experience, uh, we see you a lot out there, social media and conferences, but rarely do I see you talking about real estate. Mm-hmm. I see you talking about a lot of other things. And so give us some insights to all these other things you're you're focused on, even though, you know, our industry views you as this really strong real estate guy, but it doesn't seem like you talk about real estate a lot. You know, it's funny. You should mention that. Uh, maybe it's I'm a little insecure to talk about real estate because I feel like there's so many smart people like yourself out there. I don't, what would I possibly add in some conversations, you know? Um, and so I, I try to focus a lot of times on stuff that's kind of unique and, and additive, right? Like, you know, if you were going to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, hey, I'm working on this deal, there's a lot of people you could call and, and give you counsel on a deal. And, and, and I could be one of them. I'd be happy to. Uh, I've just tried to sort of focus in on a space of some areas that are really hard. So, like, you know, if you were um, asking a question of, gosh, how do we have more diversity in our company and how do we do that? You know, you could call me and I could I could give you some counsel on that. Or if you said, John, I got a top performing person in the company, but I think maybe they're having a mental health issue or addiction issue. Uh, what do I do? You could call me. And so I, I try to kind of push in some hard spaces, um, maybe uncomfortable spaces, and then try to be a, an access point to people. And um, I have had many times where I've given a lecture uh, that's resulted in somebody coming up to me in tears, like processing some hard thing. Or, you know, I've had people who you and I have known over the years who have gone to me privately and, and mentioned that maybe their child or somebody was dealing with an issue and that I've tried to help on that. Um, I will say this, that I want you to, I want you to visualize something. If I okay. brought you a troubled uh, retail real estate asset and I said, let's look at this and, and tell me what you think. Um, you would look at that asset and you would look at all kinds of things and you would come up with solutions of how to improve that asset, right? Like yeah. you know how to do that and being creative. Well, let's take that same skill set and let's look at a person. You know, if we see a person that has some great things going on, but they they need some coaching, there's that. And then we might look at that same thing with corporation, right? Like we look at a corporation, how do we improve it? And then you can also apply that same mindset to society or to a community, right? What does our community need to do? You know, when we think about healthy retail, healthy retail is relevant to its community. Um, it connects to the community, it provides resources, it provides health. You know, when we think of great retail projects, there's, there's emotion to it, there's a feeling to it. It's just not an ROI, it's like there's a sense of ownership, right? And so when we think about a healthy person, they're connected to the world around them, you know? Uh, a healthy corporation. I look at what Publix has been doing through this crisis and I always talk about great leaders are relevant during a time of crisis and Publix is just being a phenomenal leader in the Southeast beyond groceries, just really helping people need. And then again, you know, healthy societies, healthy societies, uh, communities are connected to one another. When we think about times in history, like where does the expression um, uh, ghetto come from? You know, and that comes from uh, the Holocaust and in Poland where the, the wall was put around the city and those people were separated, how terrible that was. And when we think of that in a modern day term, when a community is blocked off and then we have uh, food deserts and things like that. Right. So, totally. so, so it may be like somebody might look at me and think, John, you're, you're kind of all over the place, but in my weird brain, I actually see connectivities through, through all that. We can't have a healthy retail project if we don't understand the community it serves. Totally. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense when you put it that way, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, this we're in an interesting time right now, uh, right? To, to say the least. And so you sell 
your successful business and how long did you, you started and own Crossman & Company? Uh, yeah, it was 13 years. 13 years. 13 years. So you sell this really successful business. You have 30 million square feet under management and you decide you start your own business. And just as you're doing that, the whole world, you know, starts to go into a crisis, a legitimate crisis. Mm-hmm. And so as an entrepreneur, someone who started their own business, you know, what are, what are you thinking about as you're, you're, you're trying to grow these two new businesses, as you say, smaller scale, maybe they're not going to be as big as Crossman and company was. How are you thinking about that through this tough time? Right. Cause there's probably a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are struggling, whether they're small business owner, the pizza guy, the, yeah. the, the, you know, the local hair salon, um, and you're, you're strapped in and holding on tight just like them. So, um, well, perspective on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, what I've told people is that, yeah, I I launched these two companies during COVID. I apparently nine 11 was taken, right? Like, so I just picked like (laughs) the best time. Um, Well, but here's the deal. Um, this is a great time, uh, to launch, uh, to expand, to do great things because people need us now. Like, uh, when the economy is fantastic and there's no problem, you don't, you don't need me. You're good. Uh, but when things are tough, um, I, I think guys like me, guys like you, people like us, uh, are more relevant because we're helpful. We can be helpful in a crisis. And I'll give you a couple examples. I had a consulting client that I was, I just kept working with. Um, I, I was working last year, kept working with them. And um, I had tendered in my invoice for January and then February. And then March came and I emailed him and I said, you know what, why don't, why don't we take this month off? Like, I'm going to keep doing stuff, but don't, don't, don't pay me. And then I did the same thing in April and, and then this month we're just redoing our arrangement. And so I've been, you know, I was working for two months for free and I, I chose that. They didn't bring, I chose it, but I chose that because, um, you know, they're going through serious stress and that's a way I can help them and honor them and, and, and be of service to them when they're going through a hard time. Another example would be is that um, I did um, uh, in March and April, I I held some calls where I just invited a bunch of different people from across the country, all all retail owners, institutional kind of folks. And I had a couple of people teed up to talk and we just had an open conversation about how to handle the crisis. And then when I got done, I typed up notes and shared the notes with everybody. And so then um, uh, this month, I did the same kind of thing for ULI. And, uh, you know, shared all that open information. And then I had one group call me, a large company, asked me if I could do a specialized version of them uh, for them. And I did. And then next month, I'm doing a similar one. But this one, I'm focusing on the, on the retailer side. And I got three major retailers where I'm doing this call. And um, they can get, we have a conversation with what their perspective is. And so my point of all that, all that's free. All that's free. Um, and I've gotten great feedback, um, but I've done it because I feel there's a need. There's people that are stressed out, they're in problems, and I want to be helpful in serving in those times. So I, I think it's a time to lean in, not lean back. And I, and I also think that people won't forget it. Let me, let me tell you this quick story because I love this story. I have a great Dane named Pepper. And, <laughs> How uh, big? We, you she's, 110, she's 110 pounds. I will say that she could kiss you on the face and she'd like to. I mean, that's the kind of kind of dog she is. Okay. So uh, well, I take her to the doggy daycare, you know, whatever, once a month, and she gets all this, her little stuff done. So I drop her off, and this is like two weeks ago, and I go to pick her up, and as I come in, uh, Samir is the name of the guy that owns the place. I said, Samir, what do I owe you? And he says, 45 bucks. And so I pull out my money, but I'm fumbling with it because, you know, the dog's jumping around. She's yeah, 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 yeah. Fumbling around. And so uh, he says, you know, just 35, just give me 35 bucks. And I'm like, How about, Samir, you said it's 45. It's 40. So I put 45 on the counter. Samir takes his finger and he puts it on the five and he slides it back over to me. And he looks at me and he says, we all need to do our part to help each other. Now, I will never do any kind of dog business with anybody else but Samir. I didn't need the $5, but I allowed him to do that because I wanted to honor his graciousness, right? And give him respect as a person. And that's my point is that, you know, people can and will be defined uh, by their behavior. The opposite, you know, when we've seen, I was at Adidas and Ruth Chris and these big, huge, rich companies 
going after these government money when you and I know tons of mom and pops who really need it, right? Yeah. And so again, it comes back to these are times when we get so defined. So I would say that if you're an entrepreneur and you're launching your business right now, good for you. Good for you. This is a great time to launch it. I know this is going to sound, I know, harsh or paternal, however it's going to come across, but I've been talking to college students and I've been saying, I'm so glad you're graduating now because you, the, the great greatness is going to come out of this. You, you and I are going to look back 20 years from now, we're going to see an executive who graduated this time and it was perfect because it grinded them and made them strong. You and I are going to see some retailers that are going to be like, man, where do those guys come from? I'm like, oh yeah, they launched in 2020. Yeah. But they, they were creative. They came with new ideas. They were doing things differently. And so all this stuff is hard and painful, but if we handle it right, it's worthy. It's awesome story with Samir. Fantastic. Really, really cool story. Great perspective. Um, so uh, pivoting a little bit. So through all this, you, you wrote a book. Yeah, I did. Uh, tell us a little bit about that book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for years I've done, for over 20 years, I've guest lectured at different colleges. And, and most of my lectures would be about the history of shopping centers is one of the lectures I do or um, how to get into commercial real estate, that kind of thing. So several years ago, I was lecturing at the University of Florida and I decided to just write something different. Uh, again, kind of maybe other people would do. And so I wrote this speech called the top five ways to get fired and the top five ways to keep from being fired. And I really wrote it from the perspective of if, if you're a senior at a major university in America and 10 years goes by, why would you be super successful versus, you know, being terminated? And, and you and I, I'm not sure you as the years have seen tremendously talented people who've lost their careers for a variety of reasons. So that speech became my most requested speech. I, I really got surprised. I, I would guest lecture in um, you know, retail college courses and they would want me to talk about that. So I turned it into a book. And the reason why I turned the book is because I wanted to provide it as a resource uh, for more people. And then just recently um, uh, it's come out as an audio book. And I know you're wondering, no, I did not have Wesley Snipes read it. Uh, <laughs> it's my voice on there. And uh, the book's a financial loser, it's, but it, it, that's not the point. The point is, is that it's a tool and I hope it can help open up um, conversations uh, to people to talk about some different, different hard but important topics. This book may be a financial loser, but, but writing does lead to wealth. Maybe not in the form of that book, but the brand it creates certainly helps. Yes, that, that is absolutely true. There, there's a lot of um, uh, byproduct uh, success and that can be financial or, or other things. Um, I will tell you this, what I really enjoy is I keep the book with me at all times. And when I valet my car, I always tip well. And then almost always I give my book to the valet because most of the time valets are college students. And it's a, it's a fun experience when you look at somebody and say, Hey, with this book, and I really would like you to have it. I gave, um, I gave one copy to the guy that works at the smoothie place and a few days later, I went back to the same smoothie place, and he said, why did you give this book to me? And he's pre-med. He's a pre-med kid in college. <laughs> and I said, look, I wrote this book for you. I wrote this book for achievers, and you, you really appear to be an achieving young man, and I want, I want to give this to you. So that's, that's been a real, a real joy. And, of course, what's funny is, you know, I'm older than you. The, my peer group is now really having kids going off to college, and so that's another angle or avenue, I should say, is that when I have friends who have kids going to college, you know, sometimes it, sometimes you can be cool uncle. I mean, sure you've already seen this, that sometimes strangers or, or other families can say something to your kids that they listen more than to you, um, and that happens. And so I try to be the helpful uncle to a lot of people. Awesome stuff. The, what, you know, we get a lot of young folks listening to this. What are you seeing is the, as and I'll give you my perspective as a interviewer, mm-hmm. what are you seeing as the, some of the challenges that the college graduates today are having as they try to enter the workforce? The number one thing uh, you'll see from really talented college students today is fear. Um, you know, when I lecture, I'll, I'll tell college seniors or graduate students, here's my top advice of things you need to do. And I often find that like 4% of them do it. And none of them I'm saying are hard, but they're, I mean, hard in the sense they're not calculus, like academically hard, but they're emotionally hard. 
And so I see that the most common thing is I'll say, I'll say to students, like, for example, um, it, whatever university you went to, like, let's just pick on, you know, North Carolina has a great real estate program, University of North Carolina. And I'll say, look, look at the board of advisors for the University of North Carolina who are in real estate and why are in school on LinkedIn, reach out to them, right? And I mean, that could apply uh, to Columbia or MIT or, you know, Harvard, wherever you go in school, right? And I say, do that because that's a step of building that relationship. Send a message. You know, you, you and I get stupid LinkedIn requests all the time from salespeople, right? But all if Kashi takes the time, it's like, Chris, I'm at the same school that you attended. And I was talking to John Crossman and he recommended I reach out to you. Can we connect to LinkedIn? Because I want to learn more about getting in the industry. You're going to say yes. You're going to say yes to that. Most people would say yes to that. 100%. Right. And so I tell students that all the time and I've never had a fellow board member come back and say, Oh my gosh, John, I got, you know, 900 requests. Like, <laughs> so yeah. what I would say to you is like, um, you know, don't be uh, fear motivated, right? Like, you know, I always try to think about be love motivated. Like I, I love my future. I love my family. I want to help them. I, I love the industry. I love companies like, and so leaning in and taking some risk and, you know, um, uh, you and I didn't become friends because we met once. It's because we met over and over and over and over again. We saw each other in different cities and different contexts and that's, that's how relationships built. So if you're a college senior, it's not like you're going to connect to LinkedIn on you and me and then have a relationship. You know, you got, you got to lean in, you know, um, when college students often reach out to me, I'll, I'll respond back to them and I'll say, um, Blaine Strickland, Beth Azor, Rod Sotomasso, I always mispronounced his name, sorry Rod, um, but all three of them have written books on commercial real estate. You know, like my book's about life, their books are on real estate. And so oftentimes I'll email students, I'll copy all three of them and I'll say, buy their book, give their book a review, um, get a chance to meet them, ask them to sign it, uh, follow all them on social media. These three people, a big part of their heart and their life is training young people in real estate, right? Um, and again, it's a very small percentage that do. Why is that? I think that this younger generation, they're better than us at a lot of things. I mean, one of the things they're better at is um, emotional awareness, you know, mental health awareness. They're really good at that kind of stuff. But they get fearful. They get, they get concerned that, oh my gosh, I'm going to post something on social media and, and people are going to laugh at me or mock me or whatever. Um, you know, when it comes to social media, I'm pretty fearless. I mean, I think I take a lot of calculated risk, but I, but I push into things. And um, uh, I think a lot of this, that age group is so cautious. They, they don't want to look dumb. Right. And I'm like, you're a college student. It's okay. Look dumb. It's all right. Just, <laughs> I mean, you and I can't play that card. We, you know, but, um, but they can. And it's better that they take those risks now because if a kid is uh, at any, is at, you know, University of Arizona and reaches out to you and says, hey, what's advice? You're probably going to help them. But the day they come out and say, well, now they're working for such and such company that competes with you. Yeah. You're a little less likely, you know, like if their title now is associate at whatever read or something like yeah. that, buying, trying to buy in the same property you are, eh, the relationship changes, doesn't it? Yeah. Right? I would say that the real challenge that I see and and maybe why there's fear is I, I think that the universities around the country need to somehow start focusing on some of the intangible skills and, you know, less on some of the, you know, Saturn and Pluto the ability to communicate and connect with others is a, a, a something that no matter the role, I think every organization is looking for, right? The ability to connect with someone else, to empathize with them, the ability to uh, communicate uh, is, is vital. And I often ask this question that stumps, you know, 95% of the college kids that I, I interact with, which is one of the first questions is, Tell me about you. Nothing to do with work. Nothing to do with school. Right. Right. Yeah. And I get those big eyes that I just made. Yeah. And then they'll say something like, you know, well, uh, after they fumbled around and they'll say, well, I, I like to 
you know, this is what I like to do on the weekends and this is what some of my interests are and some of my, you know, what I've done. And I'm like, I don't want to know what you like to do. I want to know who you are. Tell me who is, you know, Bob Smith. And they really struggle with that question tremendously. When someone can instantly has the self-awareness as a college student to know who they are and then can then have the ability to communicate that you build an instant connection with somebody. And so that's an opportunity question in my opinion that I give candidates often Uh and I get a lot of swings and misses there where (laughs) I've spent 10 minutes on it. Like saying like, this isn't a trick. I'm just trying, I'm asking and I'm surprised how much it, how much volume it speaks of someone when they actually as a college graduate, when they actually can answer that question, I would have thought five, seven years ago that that would have been a no brainer. That's an easy layup and it is not. So um, uh, recently, last couple of weeks, I've had two different companies contact me, great companies, and one needs 40,000 square feet of space, the other needs 20,000 square feet of space, and the space they're looking on is kind of the similar area. So they've asked me to help them figure that out. And, you know, I've done some pretty quick, basic things. And guess what? Nothing's, there, there's no space. I can't find space. So what I'm going to do today is when I leave here, I go home, I'm going to pick up one of my daughters and we're going to drive that market. And then we're going to be like, okay, like there's no sign. Nothing says anything's available. We got to research and find out if somebody owns that property. And can we call them and get them to sell and, and like lean into that, right? And so to be good at our business, you have to have that, that part of your brain. That's what you're talking about. When that college student gets that question, they're trying to think through what's the right answer. Uh, but so many times in our business, there's a lot of answers and things that go, go deeper. When my daughters, they're 15 and 16 now, when they were younger, and I would take them to Publix, go grocery shopping, I would give them a part of the grocery list and say, go find these items and meet me back over here. And they'd get a little freaked out. And then they'd come up to me and they'd say, Dad, I can't find these items. I said, well, you see that person right there in that green shirt? Yeah. Go ask them to help you find it. And I mean, they would like, you know, like, oh, my yeah. God, I can't, you know. And now it's a joke and uh, that they're, they're over it. Like my one daughter at 16, she had a, this week and had to make a cake and the cake had to be themed of a world event in U.S. history. It was just like an extra credit assignment for her history class. So I had her go to the baker and ask for advice. You know, how can you make the cake, the frosting look certain ways to design it in this context? And I was really proud of her ability to eye contact, things like that. I always say this to them. They know this, that I'm going to do it. When we go through and we're checking out with a cashier, I always try to make the cashier laugh. I always try to say something ridiculous. Like usually I'll turn to them and say, no girls, I'm not buying you vape sticks and liquor anymore. Stop asking. You know, <laughs> silly. But part of that is just teaching them exactly what you're talking about, which is eye contact and connectivity. And I always tell students, like, look, so much of life is just skill sets. You know, look, I'm my natural state, look, I'm an introvert, I'm dyslexic, and I suffer from the imposter syndrome. Like, all three of those make it hard for networking, uh, but it's just a skill set. And if you practice it and you work on it, you can get really good at it, even if it's not natural to you. Sage advice. All right. So what I'd, I'd like to do next, John, is I'd like to take you back in time. And I'd like you to, you know, the, the premise of the show is the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'd like you to give us a, cause you've been involved in a lot from phase into, you know, selling properties at Trammell Crow to owning your own company. I'd like you to give us the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood and um, about a, a deal you were a part of in any capacity that, you know, ended up that had some interesting, uh, interesting insights for everybody. So I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you two because they, they both got to give different perspective. Uh, one of my clients one time uh, bought a shopping center and they paid $27 million for it. And then they had me do some consulting when they're acquiring it. And then they hired me to lease and to manage it. And, and so I had another person manage it. I was doing the lease and did that. And then I switched to investment sales. And so the time came for the property and went the property on the market. So they went through an internal evaluation five years later, and they came back and said, we think the asset's worth uh, $47 million, right? So you, you go to the market, $47 million, client's extremely happy, everyone's done well. 
problem is I did my own research and I came back and I concluded, I thought the center was probably worth about $57 million. Wow. And that's what we sold it for. So when I called that client and we got them an additional $10 million, uh, they have never forgotten that, <laughs> you know, it <laughs> was a very good day. But I think that for me, you know, part of the lesson there is like, guys, you know, I, I, when I look at stuff, I want to break records. I want to do outstanding service. I want to, you know, just because somebody says they, ex they expect 47 million doesn't mean you deliver 47 million. Like going above and beyond and finding ways to like push the envelope. I'm very, very proud of, of that story, that situation and uh, how we, we put an extra $10 million in our client's pocket that they weren't expecting. Yeah, uh, you don't hear that often. No, well, again, you know, I can't tell times I've had people say, you know, well, let's sell it for X. And I'm like, well, I mean, if we can prove it out that it's X plus and it makes sense, everybody wins. And by the way, the buyer of that asset years later sold the asset for more than that. Like everybody won with that. It was all good. And part of it, I'll tell you else about that deal was demographics. It's in a tourist area. And when you pull the demographics, it had like 18 people living in a three mile radius. All right. Mm -hmm but it's close to the entrance of Disney. And so I did my own math. I had a count of all the hotel rooms in the area, walking distance. I said times, you know, I don't know what my math was, like times 3.5, which was average on people per room, uh, times 80% times five, and you know, tourist people spend five more than times more than regulars. I did this math of equation that I created and I felt really good about it. My number came back, included that there was a, in effect 400,000 people and walking distance. And so because I did that math, that helped express that while if you if you were in New York City looking at this property, it looks terrible, it actually does phenomenally well and all the numbers proved out. So the uh, second thing I wanna tell you was, you know, we all remember where we were on 9-11 and where was I? I was in Disney's uh, headquarters in Central Florida uh, in a meeting about a deal and uh, all the crazy stuff, uh, sad stuff went down. And the deal that I was trying to get, um, they didn't pick me. They picked another group. And so the other group got it. They worked on the development for a long time. Um, they totally messed it up. It was a disaster. And then this is years later, it, it went to bankruptcy. And so after it went into bankruptcy, um, I got a call um, from the guys at Disney saying, hey, John, that deal all those years later, it went to bankruptcy. So Disney owned the development. This is they an owned the land. They sold it to this developer who who built a project that just never kind of never kind of came together. Yeah. So um, the bank was the bank had taken it over, and and oddly enough, I knew the guys with the bank, and so um, I was able to step in, um, you know, work with Disney um, because obviously they still had some restrictions. That animal uh, work with the lender, and they were they were a big Fortune five hundred company too. And then the center had a big vacancy and I worked to get Publix into the center. So in the negotiation, it was Disney, Publix, and then another huge uh, banking entity. <laughs> um, and so we redeveloped the property. Um, it was named development of the year that year. And that center today, um, outstanding center, does great numbers. When I was talking about my mom, my mom's doctor is right behind it. And so I've been back oh to my God. recently. I went to take my mom over to get you know, a little breakfast after a doctor's appointment. And so I'm very proud of that story. One of the things I tell people is like, so much of the story is about relationship, right? And so much of the story is like, hey, in that first meeting, I lost. I pitched really good. I thought I did a great job. I lost. But I was very respectful um, to my friends at Disney. And then years later, when the opportunity came again, I got the call and I got the opportunity and I was able to perform. Um, and then a lot of the, a, lot, a lot of trust involved, like when calling publics and telling them, Hey, this is complicated and a lot of issues and having them understand it. And I'll tell you one last funny thing. It's, it's next to this big community. And I got a call from somebody, a leader in the community saying, Hey, some of the residents want to know you're taking on the center and redeveloping it. Um, you know, they feel like they don't have access to you. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, here's my cell phone number. And you can give it to anybody you want, and they can call me whenever they want, and I'm happy to give them anything they need. And the guy was like, really? And I said, yeah. You know what's funny is? No one ever called. No one ever <laughs> called. I, but I think that oftentimes that, that just by knowing they could call, it set up emotionally made them, made them feel better. So uh, those are just a couple of deals I'm, I'm really proud of. I feel like uh, we're unique and fun, and I think the relationship. So I, have a lot of, I have a lot of questions on this Disney <laughs> 
lender public story. Yeah. So unpacking it a little bit, mm-hmm. you go in, Disney owns this piece of land. They're going to sell the land to a developer to yeah. build. They have a vision of a shopping center. Mm-hmm. All right. So Disney goes to, now they're, they're hiring. And were you going into just get the leasing and management or were you going to buy this? Yeah, I was going to buy it. I had a partner. And so we were, we were competing with this other developer to buy the property. And, and we had a vision and the other developer had a vision. And Disney bought off on the other guy's vision. And I don't mean to try to be disrespectful, but the, the vision didn't work. He you know, can't it execute. Was, yeah, well, it was... You know, honestly, uh, Disney, I think, got a little bit humbled and they, they, they were easier to work with because we had to tell them, like, guys, like, we want this property to be in the integrity of how you guys want it. That said, uh, there's some parking areas we need to, you know, we need to move some things around and make them a little bit more traditional. And so we were, uh, they, we, they, listen, I, I really try to be respectful of people, of different people's cultures and their values and what's important to them. And again, trying to make things work out for everybody. And did. Okay. And so the, so you lose, as you called it. Yeah. And how long before you get a call back from Disney? Seven years, I think. So seven years. So why was Disney still involved? Because they sold it to this developer. Were they, were they a partner with the developer? Did they they weren't a partner. They just owned all the land around it. Got it. So they had, there was some, there was some, still some level of connectivity. And so after, again, after it had been foreclosed and the bank was now in control, um, I think Disney was concerned about, you know, this property being in front of some of their other projects looking dilapidated and, and they were taking the complaints. And so, you know, I, um, I really, you know, try to do, always do a good job by those folks and came back so, together. And so they, they call you did, and you, you know, the bank and you now are working on a, so a new development is potentially easier than one that's for lack of a better word failed. So now you have that, that challenge where it's kind of got a little bit of a, I would say, a reputation now that kind of can't work, which makes it challenging sometimes, right? I always say the only thing worse than a vacant space is a space that turns over and over and over and it kind of gets that bad, bad vibe to it. Right. And so did you have publics in your back pocket? Did, did you have to go and present to publics? What, what, after the Disney called you, what'd you do next? Well, uh, I did not have Publix on my back pocket. Um, you know, obviously had a real, have, have had a long staying relationship with them. Um, but if I present a site to Publix, I, I present it exactly how any other developer presents it to them. And um, so I really try to make sure I have all the details, all the information worked out, and then always tell the truth, exactly what's going on with this situation. And so that's, that's what we did. You know, we, we brought it to them. We told them the story and what we're looking to do and the change we need to make. Uh, to make the property work. And, you know, they accepted it worked out. Um, You know, I would tell you that, look, there's different reasons why I want my phone to ring. And uh, did you ever see the movie Michael Clayton? Yeah. George Clooney. You know, I I, sometimes I reference that movie because uh, um, when he says, you know, I'm I'm not a magic man or whatever, I'm a janitor and the bigger the mess, the bigger the mom. And so, I want people that if they have a really, really flawed real estate project to know if they call me, they're going to get an honest answer. They're going to get a, a reliable answer and that I can help them through that project. The same is true if um, their company, you know, I've done consulting work for companies where I've helped them really reform their real estate departments. Um, I've helped them staff, helped them figure out how to work together, communicate better, and communicate to the industry. And I'm really proud of that work I've done over the years. And then also then that comes back to the back to the individual. Um, so I think that, you know, when there's different people in our industry, they're experts at different things. And I think there's reasons why um, I come to the top of the list on some topics because of the, the skills I bring. Totally. What would you say, and I think time is always interesting. So you get the new project. Uh-huh. Uh, you're working with these three Fortune 500 companies, right? These three behemoths 
Right. Um, you got Disney chirping in one year, you got the lender, and you have to get publics over the hump to believe in your vision of what this site could be. Uh-huh. How long did it take publics to go, you know what, this is an opportunity, we need to do this, and, and, and them pull, and them say, let's go, John? You know, I think that it was faster than normal, as I recall, but I, my guess would be is that that was about a year uh, that took to get all that kind of put into place. Um, but again, you know, some of that's made easier by really understanding uh, how, how Publix works. You know, you, you got to study the culture of companies and then you've got to match to their cultures, not put your culture onto theirs. And for years, I've, I've just really, in a friendly way, I try to educate on how Publix works. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Publix is very mano a mano. Like who your contact is at Publix, that is who you work with. And so when someone comes blazing in and says, oh, I know somebody on the, on the board of directors. Uh-uh. Oh, I, I, I know. I used to know the guy that who's two levels up. Let's call that guy. No, call your contact. Call your contact at Publix, the person responsible for that area and then give them the information they need. You know, I mean, that sounds kind of simple, but it goes back to the advice for college students that a lot of times there's simple advice that some people just choose not to take. And I've, I have warned some people, I knew a guy recently, a couple of years ago, and he went around Publix to a senior person. I told him not to do it. He did it, he ruffled some feathers. And I told him, I said, you know, you need to go to Lakeland and apologize. That's what you need to do and never did it. And then he still has a bit of, there's still some tension in that relationship. Uh, people don't like that. People don't like it when you go around them to their boss, right? I mean, some places that works, but not in that culture. Yeah, I would say that that happens because of the training over the years to people that has been instilled, especially in sales of, you got to get to the decision maker. Uh-huh. Right. And so, you know, there's a little spurty in someone's head saying, well, don't accept a no from someone who doesn't have the ability to give you a yes. Right. And that, you know, the reality, the big change, yeah. the big change that I think that has happened is over the course of time is that rarely in today's day and age does one person make a decision of, of that magnitude of right. a $20 million investment into a store or something like that. It's a multiple people. And so the, the really the, the way to do it is to get, you know, a corporate advocate, your mono mono, as you call it, contact, build a relationship for them so that they can help push the opportunity inside versus going around them to the, quote unquote, decision maker. Yeah. Um, well, and again, in other company, companies is different, right? I mean, other companies, you know, but I just come back to it. It's like the same thing with, with Disney, you know, uh, Disney has their own, obviously brand and reputation and things that are important to them. And so I think that Disney knew uh, there was 0% chance I would ever say anything negative about Disney in a public light. And of course I wouldn't. I'm, I love Disney. I can't wait for them to reopen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually was emailing with someone for HR department last night saying, on behalf of the entire planet, please reopen. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that there's that too, that sometimes, you know, you meet people and they're like, they don't care what other people think. And you think, okay, but uh, you know what? Um, that, that doesn't really build trust. And when someone else has got things that they're trying to do, you know, our, our industry is so interesting because, you know, you, you and I work with entrepreneurs and we work with uh, corporate people and we work with mom and pops. We, need, we work with fortune 500s and you've got to be able to interconnect people and different people, cultures, right? You know, it's, it's funny. I remember when I was a young lease agent, really trying to make sure I understood when uh, Ramadan was uh, because I had so many tenants that I would be working with that are Muslim and, and I, would always feel like a jerk if I offered them something to eat or drink when they're in my office, when I knew that, when I learned that that wasn't part of their culture. Right. And so to me, it's like, that's, that's part of the beauty of our industry of like all those different nuances and the better you get at respecting the other side of the table, I think that you have more longevity in our industry. Totally. Um, well said. And so, um, the, so this is obviously in Orlando, Florida, this Publix, mm-hmm. right? So after you, Disney brought you in and they 
you, you they called you back and you're connecting with the lender and you go and get Publix. Did Disney come around and say, you know, and I don't know, what was the project going to be? What was the previous vision? I'm assuming well, it wasn't a grocery and center. Uh, I think it, it sort of was, but I think it was, um, there was a lot of architectural features to the property that made it cool looking, but made it not as functioning. Right? Got it. Um, there was, you know, space size is always an issue to me. You know, um, I like small spaces, 800 to 1500 square feet are great. Uh, 2000 square foot spaces are tough to lease, right? If it goes too deep, that's an issue. Um, aesthetically looking parking lot, but it doesn't bring the customers close enough to the, to the anchor space or, uh, in the back, the back access for the trucks, you know, deliveries and things like that. So there was a lot of aspects in that first development. My guess is that the developer was negotiating with Disney and Disney said, Hey, we have these, these vision restrictions. And the developer probably said, you got it. Instead of saying no, like that, you know, we need to make some adjustments on that. So that's more viable. And so, um, you know, when, when we came in and had to have some of those conversations with Disney, uh, they were, they were awesome. They were wonderful to work with. And, you know, of course they had some things that were really important to them and we gave to them. There were some things that were uh, lack of broken that we fixed. Uh, but we had some other things where like, Hey guys, this little architectural feature, we need, we need to wipe that out and add some more parking there uh, because it's going to be hard to ever get a retailer in this area if we don't have proper parking. And so they were delightful. They were delightful. Um, so uh, it came together well, but again, it comes back to trust, right? So when we said that we we're going to do things they needed us to do, we did it. I mean, I think that moment of me giving the guy my cell phone number was a really crucial moment uh, of knowing um, that if this, if the conversations got hard or painful, um, I was going to be face front and I'd be able to have those with whoever needed to have them. And, and is the, the, the publics, is it today, does it serve tourists or primarily? Well, that's, what's interesting. It's both. And so when you, when you think about, cause you admit, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, what I was going to say is when you think about it, you know, our best, retail experiences tend to be retailers uh, who are in areas where they see a lot of repeat customers, right? And so they know each other and they're in relationship with one another. I, um, uh, my earlier call today was a guy who does a lot of civil rights work and he's an African-American uh, leader in that area. And he said, you know, John, uh, someone's not going to call someone else uh, the N word when they know them, like they're friends, right? Like people use language that's really inappropriate when it's, it's distant. And so he was really advocating for relationships to help work on those things. So in retail world, you know, when you have a retailer you go to all the time and they know you, you know, you go to your kids or whatever, well, like my Samir story, uh, that creates for your experience. Often where you have the worst retail experiences is tourist areas because the retail worker is never going to see these customers again. Um, I used to have a running joke with a buddy of mine that we would have our worst uh, Atlanta airport retail experience stories. Um, I one time went to a, a little takeout place in the Atlanta airport, asked for a Diet Coke, and they said, oh, we don't have that. You don't have Diet Coke in Atlanta? You know, like whatever. <laughs> um, it ran out, you know. And so um, when you have a tourist and, and a community shopping center, ooh, that's a, that's a different dynamic. So you, you have to know that the retailer is going to match well with the community, connect, uh, be relational, and be able to adapt to the, the person coming in and out. Uh, tour centers um, as a whole are much more profitable as again, people on my uh, vacation spend more money. I have a whole presentation I, I, I can do on that. Um, but you don't want to lose the customer service aspect. And if you think about it, you know, what's the, what's the number one retail on the planet that I trust to get that nailed down perfectly. That would be Publix. There's nobody better at that, uh, at having corporate process and systems and then the ability to be flexible and adjust in a specific area to the, to the community. And so, yeah. Um, so it is both. Um, if you focus hard on one, you're going to alienate the other and working with both is, is a challenge, but it can be done and it's been done there. It's been very successful. Ton of insights for the audience there on that story from, you know, really doing the right thing, being respectful, keeping the relationship, even though you might lose and, there's that they're sticking to your guns on what you know would be right and not pandering to what they might think is the right solution. Um, 
you know, there's working, you know, knowing exactly on the retailer side or the client side, how to really talk to them so that they are engaged on the project. There's a lot of insights there. Um, so really appreciate that. We are running short on time and I know you're a busy guy and I want to bring us to the last part of the show, retail wisdom. So it's three rapid fire questions. Let me know when you're ready. All right. Hit me. Best piece of commercial real estate advice out there. Best piece of commercial real estate advice out there. Uh, that it's beyond uh, location, location, location. It's about ownership. And that if you have the right ownership, you can do all kinds of things. Even if it's not a great area, you can be profitable if you really understand what you have. And you could have a phenomenal location and it could be terrible if you don't run it right. Well, that's the story there, right? The first story, right? That was a great location, right? Doors, yeah. You know, around Disney, right? Mm-hmm. Um, second, extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead. Uh, it's a local. I don't know if that counts, that but counts. It, it'd be Ronnie's. Ronnie's. Uh, it was a Jewish restaurant um, in on Colonial Drive in Orlando. You go in there. The guy that was the host guy was really grumpy um, and pushed you into different lines or whatever. <laughs> uh, but you go to the counter there and have a lunch for like a dollar ninety-five. And I, I used to have uh, lunch there with my old buddy David Marks all the time. It was it was an institution. I wish it was still around. It just, it had such a culture. It's, I mean, it was a very specific experience and uh, I just thought that was cool. That's great. Um, last one. You mentioned Publix a lot today and uh, I am on delimenus.com. Mm-hmm. Publix sells about 57 million pounds of their, um, their fried chicken, their crispy chicken in uh, a year. Right. And on, their eight piece fried chicken in their deli section, according to delimenus.com, goes for what price, John? I'll say $15. $7.79. Oh, man, that's a bargoon. That's a bargoon. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, John, really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much. If there's ever anything you need, let me know. Let's stay connected. It's always a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Take, Take care. care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.